Okay, welcome everybody. Um, we're here today, of course, to discuss Anthony Lowenstein's book, Disaster Capitalism Making a Killing Out of Catastrophe. Some of the paradox I feel promoting this book. What if it becomes a bestseller? Isn't that disaster capitalism in itself? Um, nevertheless, of course, as you can see, we are here definitely promoting um, this fantastic book. Um, there's no doubting its topicality. Even browsing through the newspaper this morning, um, tales of the closure of Guantanamo, um, which was, of course, built by Halliburton, serviced by G4S, stories of um, Peru Petro, um, a pipeline that's broken, spilling, um, and polluting two rivers relied on by at least eight Indigenous communities. And every day we face the prospect that the Oval Office may soon be occupied by Donald Trump, the very personification of capitalism, if not disaster. <laughs> um, I finished this book last night. I'm trying to get some light relief, sat myself down on the couch to watch The Night Manager, um, John le Carre, What Could Go Wrong? And it seems even Hugh Laurie's up to it, disaster capitalism. He plays the chairman of Iron Cast. Um, in the first scene, he's talking about how his company is there um, basically with commitment to the world and improving the world. And in the next scene, um, it's shown that he's actually peddling napalm to Egyptian revolutionaries. So um, no doubting its topicality even when um, Hollywood gets hold of it, especially when Hollywood gets hold of it. Yet unlike John le Carre, Anthony does not focus on the villains in the piece. Um, this is a work of almost overwhelming breadth. Um, it's... A tale, it tells the tale of corporate rapacity across four continents, and I'm sure that Anthony will speak about um, the very personal experiences he's had across a range of countries, and most importantly with a range of individuals that really are the voice um, in this work. Um, Anthony doesn't give a voice necessarily to the villains, and I'm sure he'd argue that basically these companies can readily channel a mouthpiece as they do, or more readily we see, summon a gag um, to silence discussion of these issues. Anthony's aim in writing the book is best described in his concluding chapter in his own words. He says, in light of the declining abilities and constricting self-interest of the Western corporate press, it is up to the individual, the citizen blogger and the Twitter or Facebook user to document the effects of disaster capitalism, to provide what is missing from the mainstream media, a view from the ground. We're going to begin tonight with Anthony telling us a bit about the book and the voices in this book. Um, Anthony's a journalist and this comes through um, in the, the readability of the book. Um, the book's unencumbered by methodological anxieties um, and grand academic theories um, about accountability, democracy, neo-colonialism, and even capitalism itself. However, underlying the book are the author's clear, um, clearly well-developed conceptions of these buttresses of our society. And so I think it would be fantastic tonight, actually, to bring the academics in, to probe Anthony um, about um, these broader themes. Um, we're privileged to have um, Brenna Bander, here, um, Brenna is a senior lecturer um, at SOAS um, in um, the law school. Her areas of research and, and teaching um, cross again an enormous spectrum from property law, equity and trust, 
um, Indigenous land rights, post-colonial and feminist legal theory, multiculturalism and pluralism, critical legal theory and critical race theory. Marsha Henry um, from the LSE, um, Deputy Director of the Centre for Women, Peace and Security, as well as an Associate Professor here. Um, and Marsha's work really ties in very nicely with the themes in this book, um, articles including peace exploitation um, and um, a book entitled um, Peacekeeping Power and Performance in Haiti, Liberia and Kosovo, certainly her geographical breadth challenges even Antony's. Um, so thank you all for joining us. We're going to have Antony introduce, as I've said, and then we're going to enter into a conversation with our commentators. We look forward then to a conversation broadening um, across the room, so we'll leave certainly a decent amount of time uh, for comments and, and questions from the floor. Without further ado, thank you, Antony. Thank you all for coming. And I appreciate LSE for inviting me. Manolis invited me about two months ago to be involved in the event this Friday evening about should the UN exist or should it be destroyed and if it shouldn't be destroyed, what should happen? That'll be discussed on Friday night. My book has a lot about the United Nations, not particularly about one country, although it talks about Haiti and elsewhere. But one of the things that really has always struck me as a journalist, so I'm speaking maybe to a room of other academics or people who are wanting to be academics or those who are in academic study. So I'm not an academic, as was mentioned. And I think for me, one of the importances of being a journalist has always been, I've been a journalist now, I'm Australian, as you can tell by my accent, I've been a journalist since professionally since about 2003. And what's always been important to me as a journalist is to, you have a choice, I think, very much what kind of journalism you want to do. It's not always quite as black and white as this, but often it is. It's really about, do you want to be someone who is a spokesperson for the powerful? Do you want to be someone who is embedded with the system? Or do you want to be someone who's critical of that system? And the term embedding was regularly used post 9-11, but particularly with the Afghan-Iraq wars, um, with the Bush administration, journalists who were embedded with US troops or British troops or Australian troops to get a very insider, narrow view. And that's one definition of being embedded. But the other definition, which I think is equally and more relevant to the sort of work I've tried to do in this book and elsewhere, is to say that you really could spend your whole time, in London's case or England's case, hanging around number 10 and speaking to advisors and politicians. Or you could be at the White House and speak to politicians and advisors. That's not irrelevant. Obviously, there's relevance in how they apply their policies to the world, to Haiti, to Afghanistan and elsewhere. But that's never been that interesting to me. And as I say in the book consistently, it really is about talking to people from the ground and on the ground. So the thesis behind the book was certainly inspired by Naomi Klein's 2007 book, The Shock Doctrine. She looks in that book, for those who haven't read it, and I encourage those who haven't to do so, at a number of different examples, not just post-9-11, but I think it's very much like mine is a post-9-11 book, in places like um, the US, um, New Orleans, Hurricane Katrina, Iraq, post-invasion, and elsewhere. And how massive deregulation, privatisation, wasn't so much maybe even called austerity then, but that's essentially what it was, is really aimed, despite the rhetoric, at benefiting the very few at the top of the system and disadvantaging the majority. And I thought that that was an idea that really seemed relevant to me across a range of areas in the work that I've been doing for the last 10 years. So the book looks into a number of different issues in Haiti, Afghanistan, Papua New Guinea, US, UK, Greece and Australia. Immigration, aid and development, mining, 
and war. And how in all those cases there is a line that runs through the cases, partly because often the same companies are involved. So say security company G4S or Serco, which many people know is very present in the UK, sadly, and also in my country, Australia, has also influence in the war-making industry in the US and elsewhere. Now, these are different people doing the jobs, but the lack of accountability is the key element here. And one of the key themes in the book that I wanted to stress was to say that the corporation, in my view, in my research, has become more powerful than the state. And this is not by any means to idealise the state, to say if only the state, for example, ran all the detention centres in the UK, things would be great that therefore human rights would be observed, there'd be no abuses. That's not what I'm arguing at all. And in fact, there are a range of examples here in the US, my country, Australia, where publicly run facilities are mismanaged or there are abuses inside them. However, if a centre is run for profit by G4S, by Serco, by a company in the UK you may have heard of called Mitie, M-I-T-I-E, which is the privately run corporation which now runs the majority of British immigration detention centres. A company that gets very little press, I don't mean that in a conspiratorial sense, I mean you have to ask local journalists why they don't talk about the company very often, but this is a company which in some ways emerged, particularly in the last few years, as G4S and Serco suffered greatly from the controversies many of you in the UK will know about, overcharging the UK government for electronic tagging, various other um, crimes and else and other things. So Mighty, in other words, was able to replace G4S and Serco pretty effectively, to be honest, and now is making a hell of a lot of money locking people up and keeping them there either indefinitely or for a very long time. For me, the importance of writing the book was also to visit places where these people were living. So I came to the UK and I spent time inside some of the detention centres here, Yarls Wood, an infamous place many people have heard of, about an hour and a half from, the, from London. Um, Harmersworth, which is near Heathrow, and various other centres, speaking to refugees, to asylum seekers, to people who are living day-to-day with privatised care, so to speak. Visiting asylum seeker housing in Sheffield. Um, And this story I know in the UK has got a a little bit of press in the last month or so of G4S contracted homes being painted with red doors to identify refugees, and the result of that was refugees were routinely abused and assaulted by people in the area who didn't like those people. And what's always remarkable about these stories, and I show this time and time and time again in the book, is that a scandal breaks. So the G4A scandal breaks a month ago, and it emerges that the doors are being painted red of asylum seekers, and the asylum seekers are pretty upset about the fact that they're being targeted by people who don't like them. The company comes out and either denies it initially, the government says not much, it says it's an outrage, it's a disgrace. Labor, which is now in opposition here, of course, says this is a real problem, we have to do something about it. The story moves on for a week, there's more allegations, there's more revelations, the company may acknowledge there's some problem, then says, okay, we're going to repaint the doors to a different, nicer, prettier colour, less red, that's what they said, and the issue dies down. The issue stops, the press doesn't report it anymore, everyone moves on. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Sure, the doors might be now green or mauve or a nice fuchsia, fine, but nothing has changed. The institutional structure has remained exactly the same. So the question I ask in the book constantly, whether it's about immigration here, in Australia, war in Afghanistan, where privatised military companies are known to abuse Afghans, to sexually abuse Afghans, to kill Afghans, it has virtually zero effect on the corporations getting more contracts. 
Now, in a logical sense, you have to ask yourself, well, why is this happening? If someone, an individual, in theory at least, is employed by the state and they kill someone or they injure someone or they sexually abuse someone, you'd hope, although you wouldn't always be right, you'd hope they would pay a price for that, go to jail, be charged, found guilty. And there are cases of individuals working for Serco or G4S who have been found guilty and gone to jail, to be sure. But in the majority of cases, the lack of accountability is central to what disaster capitalism is, and it's not just a catchy term that is nice to use in conversation or title of a book. I think it very much signifies exactly how our states, and I say ours, I mean much of the Western world these days, US, UK, Greece, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, many others, manages its business. It's made an ideological choice roughly 30 years ago. It wasn't necessarily a one-day-to-the-next position, but it was an idea that said that the state is too powerful, unions are too powerful. You have to reduce that power by outsourcing to a private corporation, prison, detention centres, war, whatever it may be. The argument was sold as being more efficient, but in reality, in all these set of places that I visited, in virtually every single case, the reality for the individuals who are suffering because of it has got worse. Now, in a place like Haiti, which I think we'll discuss later on, Haiti is a country, as many of you will know, about an hour and a half by plane from the US, an incredibly close country to the richest nation on earth, and yet it's the poorest country in its hemisphere. In 2010, it suffered a devastating earthquake where there were roughly 200,000 people killed, mostly in Port-au-Prince, the capital. And I've spent time there in the last couple of years, um, in 2012 and in 20, uh, early 2014, and what you find there is a disconnect between the rhetoric that is sold to how to help Haiti. Earthquake happens. The US pledges $10 billion to help, so we're told. This means contracting to various corporations, USAID, which is the US government's main aid, made aid, main aid arm. The Obama administration with Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State pledges to help the country. We want to we feel your pain. But behind the scenes, the reality is very different. The reality is that WikiLeaks State Department cable from 2010, which were released six months or so after the earthquake showed, the then US ambassador in Haiti said, his words, it's a gold rush. There's a gold rush. And what he meant by that was the US corporations in the US, this is a way for us to make a lot of money. He might not have been talking in a personal sense for him. I'm talking about US corporations as a whole. And one of the issues I talk about, about Afghanistan, about Haiti, is how often, though not always, an aid and development industry around USAID, or differed here in the UK, or Australian aid in my country, Australia, is often geared towards benefiting private corporations in their own countries at the expense of those they're attempting to supposedly help in Haiti, in Papua New Guinea, in Afghanistan or elsewhere. And in some ways, it's not that surprising. I mean, the rhetoric, for example, of the Cameron government here in the last 12 months has been very clear. The Cameron government's position has been, we want to shift our focus away from human rights, because that's what they were doing before, right, supposedly, to a more business-friendly policy. Australia has said exactly the same thing. And what that practically means, away from the rhetoric, is... British and American and Australian corporations not just making money in a conflict in, say, Afghanistan or Iraq, in the obvious places you'd imagine, so, for example, um, private security protecting a US military base, 
but also the possibility, say, of exploiting Afghanistan's natural resources. I was in Afghanistan last year, and one of the things that many people don't know about that country is that it's been at war now for 40-odd years, but beneath the ground, the Soviets discovered, and as did the Americans did further work since they invaded in 2001, that the country has roughly two to four trillion, trillion dollars of resources under the ground. Gold, various minerals, cobalt, which as we know is used from mobile phones, various other resources, oil and gas. Mostly untapped, because clearly the country's been at war and therefore how do you exploit the resources safely? And the reason this is an issue, apart from the obvious, is that I can't think of any country in the world, and I discuss this in the book at length, that has natural resources, that is rich in so many ways, actually is doing well. I can't think of one developing country I'm talking about. Not a first world country, a developing country. So putting aside the reasons why you would not exploit resources, climate change being the main one, security issues, corruption, all important issues, you have a, a situation in Papua New Guinea and Haiti, which is about to experience a gold rush, Afghanistan and others, of an environment where local people are literally dying because a foreign corporation is coming to try and exploit gold or gas or whatever it may be. So let's give you a very quick example about this. In Afghanistan last year, I spent some time around a mine called in Logar province, which is about an hour from Kabul, the capital. And although it's only an hour away, it's like a different world. It is an incredibly poor area. It is one of the hearts of the Taliban but it also has one of the largest untapped copper deposits in the world called Mez Inak, it's a, the name of the area, and it's controlled and run by a Chinese corporation. Got rights in 2007, and they haven't actually mined anything since, so it's been a slow process, because soon after they got the rights to the mine, it was discovered there were ancient Buddhist relics next to the site, and those relics had to be dug up or saved or moved or something. And the Chinese have been very frustrated about this and they haven't been able to mine, but there's now pressure on the Afghan government to allow that mine to begin. And this sort of goes to the heart of the question of what disaster capitalism is. A country like Afghanistan is so poor and has been reliant since October 2001 when the US and the West invaded on foreign aid. 60 to 90% of Afghanistan's GDP comes from foreign, mostly US aid. Now, if that aid disappeared tomorrow, which it won't, but if it did, Afghanistan could maybe possibly sustain a tourist industry. I mean, you'd be laughing when you hear that, but maybe, possibly not. Maybe agriculture, maybe, maybe. But ultimately, if resources would not be a viable way to make money for the country, and I argue in the book and through my research that it is not a viable way because of corruption, violence, institutional problems, climate change. How does a country like Afghanistan get on its feet? How does that happen? How does a country like Afghanistan potentially come out of a hole it's been in for 40 odd years? And there's no real simple answer to this. The Afghan government has no answer to it. The American government has spent hundreds of millions of US taxpayer dollars supporting private American mining companies to assist the Afghan government to build its industry. And it's been a complete disaster, because the industry doesn't really exist. And most of the money that the resource industry is going to, would you believe, is the Taliban. The Taliban's main source of income these days is drug trafficking. The second highest are mineral resources, oil and gas. 
So, to me, one of the great contradictions almost of the modern age is that there has been no country in the world that has received in some ways that much foreign financial support. The US in Afghanistan is its longest war in history. It has spent over $110 billion since October 2001. And one can't say there's nothing there. I wasn't there in 2001, but there are some roads and a few schools, and I'm not saying nothing has changed in 15 years, but the base reality is the country is broken. And when you've spent 110 billion US dollars, and most of that money has disappeared, gone to corruption or somewhere else, you have to ask yourself why no heads are rolled in the US? Why have no government appointments been fined or charged? Why has no one faced prosecution? Why are the same companies that were getting these contracts that, for example, train the Afghan and Iraqi armies, DynCorp, which is an American corporation, has received billions of US taxpayer dollars to train an Afghan and Iraqi army? And anyone who follows the news knows the Iraqi army in 2015 basically melted away when ISIS was rising and coming to Mosul. And Afghanistan, the army is a bit better, but weak, full of problems, corruption, etc., that army was principally trained by private interests, not by the US government. The fact that that has failed has had no impact on that company getting more contracts. Now, there's no simple answer to why that is, and I want to finish on this point. There's no simple answer why that is. There's two quick reasons. One, there's no accountability mechanism in place in the US, or many other Western countries for that matter, to actually make people accountable. I spoke to a number of people in Afghanistan last year, and I've done the same in the US, and their position is that the turnover rate of contractors and US government officials is so high that whenever an investigation begins in Kabul, say, about a contract, it takes months to investigate, the person's left. They've moved on to the next job, or the next rotation, or they've moved to Iraq, or they've gone back home to the US. And there's no process to actually bring that accountability. Secondly, there's a huge and effective lobbying system that operates in the US. Now, lobbying is not exactly new, it's been going on forever, but the lobbying system is so effective in various congressmen and women's districts that, again, they're so desperate for getting jobs to their colleagues and friends and associates and constituents in their districts that when they go from their districts to Congress in DC, they are essentially selling a message which says... We need jobs, and accountability can come later. And thirdly, the message comes from the top. And that top is, of course, the presidency of the US, where the best example and the worst example is when Obama was a candidate in 2007, he pledged to bring some kind of accountability to Bush administration contracting, to torture that was done on the Bush administration's watch. None of that has happened. And in fact, Obama has been very clear, and his words has been, we're going to look forward here and not look back. And looking forward means no accountability, no transparency, none of that. And that, to me, I think goes to the heart of why disaster capitalism should be challenged by everyone, because without it, all of us actually have a hell of a lot less power than we think we do in our so-called democracies. Thank you. Uh, okay, well, thank you first to Manolis and Devika for organizing and uh, chairing this event, and to Anthony for producing this uh, really stunning book. Um, so I'm just going to read out a few notes, a few things that uh, 
came to mind as I was reading Disaster Capitalism in the hopes that it will generate some uh, discussion uh, afterwards. Um, okay, Anthony's book is an exploration, as he's just told us, uh, of some of the most brutal forms of capitalist exploitation occurring around the globe today. It takes as its focus corporate control over the provision of security and detention, immigration, foreign aid provision, and resource extraction. The privatization of a seemingly limitless number of fields that were once within the purview of state regulation is a core part of what Antony refers to as disaster capitalism. And as we heard in his introduction to the book, he draws on the term as first articulated by Naomi Klein in her book Shock Doctrine. Um, and this term, disaster capitalism, refers to the privatization, uh, the government deregulation, and deep cuts to social spending that are often imposed after huge man-made or natural disasters. So in other words, Klein maps how privatization and deregulation, shaped by a neoliberal ideology, are imposed on cities, regions, and nation-states in the aftermath of disaster and crisis. Antony's book adds to this discourse by mapping the ways in which the outsourcing of service provision and state functions to private corporations has become globally pervasive, and not only in times of crisis or after disasters. As he writes in the introduction, and I quote, predatory capitalism goes way beyond exploiting disaster. Many ongoing crises seem to have been sustained by businesses to fuel industries in which they have a financial stake. These corporations are like vultures, feeding on the body of a weakened government that must increasingly rely on the private sector to provide public services. It is surely arguable that the corporation is now fundamentally more powerful than the nation state, as Antony also <laughs> outlined in, in terms of one of the primary theses of the book, uh, and that is often uh, the former that dictates terms to the latter. Okay, now this is a, a very persuasive argument, and uh, I think drawing on political theorist Wendy Brown, we could go uh, somewhat further and examine the ways in which what she calls a neoliberal reason, um, as she explores in her book on doing the demos, is replacing the political character and meaning of the constituent parts of liberal democracy with economic ones. She takes her aim at jurisprudence, education, the workplace, culture, and of course, the running of the state, and demonstrates how a neoliberal logic is changing our very political vocabulary and our very political imaginaries. And I want to return to the point about political imaginaries at the conclusion of my remarks. Uh, now, Getting back to the book, one of the great strengths of Antony's book uh, lies in its sheer breadth, as we've heard, uh, which is really truly stunning, I think. Um, he travels from Afghanistan to Greece to Papua New Guinea, from the UK to Haiti and beyond, to explore the reaches of corporate control over the lives of ordinary and also, in many instances, very impoverished communities. And with corporations such as G4S and Serco, popping up repeatedly in his investigations that span several different continents, we get a keen sense of just how globalized corporate power really is and the hegemonic grasp it asserts over how uh, the provision of, of a variety of different services uh, now takes place. 
Now, Antony refers to the particular forms of privatization, deregulation, and corporate control that he investigates as disaster capitalism throughout. Um, and I guess the first question I'd like to range, uh, raise for a discussion is, and I found myself repeatedly wondering as I was reading, um, what the distinction really is between disaster capitalism, as he articulates the concept throughout the book, and capitalism. So um, disaster capitalism, for instance, if we think about the chapter on Haiti, can also be described, as Anthony notes, as Aristide did when he returned to Haiti in 2011 after his seven years in exile, as the economic disaster of neoliberalism. And it's also why I wanted to refer to Wendy Brown's work at the outset to think about how, how do neoliberal forms of capitalist accumulation uh, you know, how does disaster capitalism, in terms of the breadth that you've set out in the book, actually differ from what these other, um, uh, from what many other uh, political theorists and, and scholars and activists are describing in, in, the, uh, in terms of neoliberalism? Um, now, the, the other issue I wanted to, uh, the other question I wanted to raise is about the, what I want to refer to as the colonial prehistory of what you're describing as disaster capitalism. So, um, in each case study, Antony's analysis spans uh, at least the last uh, 15 years, but often details, he often refers to the structural adjustment policies and the legal deregulation that occurred from the 90s onwards in a variety of places. So uh, there's, you know, a, there's um, an, a very informative uh, kind of background going back to the 90s, I think, uh, that helps to explain the forms of privatization that he's describing in the present. In examining the recent history that sets the scene for the unbridled corporate takeover of immigration detention facilities, prisons, security, and construction in the aftermath of natural disasters, uh, the question of the long durée background to uh, this particular form of capitalism, I think, comes to the fore. And here, um, a book that came to mind uh, it was Mike Davis's late Victorian Holocaust, The El Nino Famines and the Making of the Third World. In that book, Davis excavates the British colonial policy in the 19th century that caused the deaths of millions of Indians. Following the political economy of Adam Smith, who wrote in The Wealth of Nations that, quote, famine has never arisen from any other cause but the violence of government attempting by improper means to remedy the inconvenience of dearth. The Viceroy of India at the time, in the late 19th century, Lord Lytton, uh, followed this injunction against state attempts to regulate the price of grain during the famine, causing the death of untold numbers of impoverished Indians. As Mike Davis writes, and I quote, by official dictate, India, like Ireland before it, had become a utilitarian laboratory where millions of lives were wagered against dogmatic faith in omnipotent markets overcoming the inconvenience of dearth. Um, so here we have the colonial laboratory, which sounds like a very familiar technique in the laboratory, in the, in the, rep sorry, the repertoire of state and corporate processes of accumulation, and brings to the fore something mentioned by Antony in the book, which is a shadow of imperialism that is cast over so many of the sites he visits. 
Um, and when we think back to colonial history as really maybe the uh, ground zero of the kind of capitalist accumulation we see happening now, I think we're also reminded of the very close relationship between the corporate legal form or the corporate form and state power. You know, so colonial endeavors begin with the chartered company, right? So whether it was that was the South Australia Company, the Hudson's Bay Company, the East India Company, etc. So I, I raise that point to kind of challenge the idea that there's ever been a strict separation between state power and corporate power, private power, um, and to think about the ways in which the very intimate relationship between state power and corporate power um, has really been crucial to um, the to modes of capitalist accumulation that that really define the modern era. Now, um, Antony mentions variously racism, and he talks about austerity and imperialism, um, but how are these things connected to each other? Um, how are race and gender as formations that were central to co colonial history and colonization, central to contemporary modes of capitalist accumulation? Uh, and this is the question I, I want to end my comments with. A partial answer can be found in the work of Marxist and third world feminists who have theorized the concept of primitive accumulation and have pointed out how race and gender and the ongoing legacy of colonial relations are absolutely central to this particular mode of capitalist accumulation which continues its rapacious plunder over seemingly limitless spheres of life. For example, uh, the ongoing role of primitive accumulation in capitalist formations is a key focus of Silvia Federici's work. She argues, as Rosa Luxemburg did, that it is a mistake to relegate the modus operandi of primitive accumulation to the past as a bygone, if essential, step in the origination of capitalist economies. And I quote from Federici. She says, a return to the most violent aspects of primitive accumulation has accompanied every phase of capitalist globalization, including the present one, demonstrating that the continuous expulsion of farmers from the land, war, and plunder on a world scale, and the degradation of women are necessary conditions for the existence of capitalism in all times. In the New Imperialism, David Harvey set out his theory of accumulation by dispossession, an effort to bring Marx's concept of primitive accumulation into the present. Harvey argues that some of the mechanisms of primitive accumulation that Marx emphasized have been fine-tuned to play an even stronger role now than in the past. For Harvey, the neoliberalism of our current moment, exemplified perhaps above all by the financialization of global economic activity, operates in conjunction with older mechanisms of capitalist accumulation. And um, it's in the work of these and other scholars that uh, we, we, we can glean the view uh, that democracy, liberal democracy, has always been broken irreparably in the forms of violence waged upon those that its non-identical twin, capitalist accumulation, uh, dispossessed. Um, and this brings us really to the, the question, a, a couple of questions that I'll end with, 
um, uh, about the, about the the issue of legal accountability and responsibility. So, um, I want to refer to the work of Wendy Brown, David Harvey, Sylvia Ferrici, and others who um, don't see a pristine or or a better kind of state governed form of capitalism to return to. You know, and I can bring up the example of police violence as, the, as a primary, uh, as, a, as a good example of where there's never been really any kind of state accountability for deeply ingrained uh, racialized structural violence against um, um, vulnerable communities, vulnerable populations, whether that's in the U.S., or in the UK, or, or in a variety of other, other places. So, um, this, you know, to, to end, I guess I think it would be um, interesting to think together um, about modes of resistance, and also what kinds of political imaginaries might aid us in shaping a different horizon, a different political horizon, uh, perhaps a less disastrous one uh, than we currently see before us. Thanks. That's really academic means journalists there. So it's fantastic. What I'm going to do now is ask Marsha to come in and add, well, three, and certainly that's another set of fascinating themes introduced. Um, so we're going to ask about the distinction between um, disaster capitalism and capitalism. She brought in the colonial prehistory, um, showing the intimate relationship that, that did exist between state power and corporate power then. And finally, looked at, at whether dispossession and degradation of women and minorities, um, lack of accountability, are conditions to the existence of capitalism. I know Marsha has a lot to say on those points as well. So perhaps if you could come in and, and expand or, or speak to those points, and then Anthony, you can chime in. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for inviting me to comment on this. I guess I wouldn't be, um, uh, I wouldn't be true to my um, feminist disciplinary training if I didn't bring up gender, uh, <laughs> gender issues in relation to your, to your work. Um, so maybe I can just start on that. Um, um, on that point, and then tell you a bit more about what I really liked in your book, and what I, and then a few more points about what I'd like to hear more about. Uh, maybe, uh, possibly, uh, some of what we're contributing here today might be the fruits of a second book, <laughs> connecting on from that, or expanding that, or maybe you really want to work on something completely different now that you've uh, depressed all of us in uh, um, this this. Um, Sharp, but but uh, but um, a depressing account um, of rural politics. Okay, so maybe I mean one of the first things that I thought about as I was reading this was um, really just the um, the overwhelming numbers of men that you spoke to actually in in the work, and also the overwhelming overwhelming number of men that are victims of disaster capitalism. So I was really struck by. I guess the absence of your your kind of gender, the possibility of, of making a kind of, um, I guess, a, a deeper or broader gender analysis. Um, and and I, I like the way that you incorporated um, throughout your, your case studies, throughout the country studies that you um, looked at, accounts of 
for example, um, sexual violence against women um, in Haiti, for example. Um, so I liked how you incorporated those, but I guess I, I wanted to know if you thought there was a kind of, I guess, a further analysis, and this links with Brenna's um, kind of account of imperialism. And I thought, well, actually, what disaster capitalism needs um, more than anything is, a, is the maintenance of, of uh, global gender division of labor. It needs, it needs cheap sources of labor, who, uh, and women are often the group that uh, corporations turn to. Um, it needs um, racial divides. It needs the color line to be maintained, the global color line. Um, and so it, it, it really it feeds off those things. And I thought that in some places in your book, I, I was uh, I was really you, you quoted a few um, a few um, excerpts from the book, and I thought you had, you had such a brilliant uh, visceral way of describing um, capitalism, uh, both in the conventional sort of metaphors, you know, as a serpent, as a kind of um, kind of corrosive um, beast, but but also you know you um, you. Yeah, you just you created this kind of um, amazing sort of um, visceral image of, of capitalism, and I guess I I was thinking, you know, do you want to do you want to push that that further and think about what capitalism, what disaster capitalism actually needs to reproduce itself? So it's not just the corporations, um, you know, uh, capitalizing on disaster, but Capitalism itself needs to maintain, um, it needs to continually fail in order to reproduce itself. So I thought that was kind of interesting in relation to uh, um, um, the accounts that you gave of, of, of gendered subjects, of racialized subjects. Um, so some of the things that I liked, um, Brenna's already talked about, but I thought I mean, the empirical breadth of this piece of work is really, really impressive. Um, that alone should be <laughs> reason uh, reason to buy it. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that I, I fight with in um, relation to the Economist is that I hate it and I love it for its uh, its exploration. I hate it for its politics, um, but I love it because it actually it actually covers regions of the world that you often don't hear about. So I I, I sort of read it with this kind of Statist relationship, but I thought that you know the empirical breadth in this piece was so interesting, and you know really Haiti in particular, um, partly because I've done research on Haiti, but it is often a forgotten site, um, despite its its um, uh, the people's pleas to be um, to be uh, deoccupied. Actually, um, I thought that I, I love the mix of the the everyday and ordinary people that appeared in the book, and. Um, and I thought you represented such a wide range of individuals. I mean, obviously, you, you, you tried to get access to a number of individuals, and you, and you struggled in some cases, but I, but I also think you spoke, you spoke to people that, that academics would never get access to. So, so I thought that was really, that was really rich um, in peace. I thought, you know, partly because my, my own work is interested in space and, space, and spatial relations, I thought that your your impressions of these places were also you, you gave you had a kind of anthropological eye through uh, a large large part of the book, and you gave what Geertz would call thick descriptions of things. So you really you really paid attention to the details and, and gave the reader um, a deep sense of these empirical sites. I also liked you know, um, the fact that you oscillated between these analyses 
by focusing on the kind of micro, looking at interpersonal contexts and, and interpersonal challenges, the challenges of, of refugees, for example, of, of ordinary citizens in Greece, um, you know, trying to figure out what is the what is our national identity in the wake of this crisis, and then you you know you oscillated nicely between that kind of micro focus and then this macro focus where you looked at kind of you know what what's the what's the nation doing what is the what is the global perspective on this and you went back and forth between that I thought that was really really interesting because often you get a, either a very detailed micro account or you get this very macro account which feels so distant from the individual people. I like the focus on private corporations. We never get enough dirt on private corporations. It always seems like we're we're you know, we're, we're we're getting either the whistleblower's account or you know we're getting a kind of or we're getting an academic account, which maybe doesn't always give us the kind of flavor of of I guess the, or the nitty gritty of what corporations are actually doing, what they what they look like. And I thought the thing that I liked the most in a way was that it was very much. Uh, an anti-funny account. It wasn't the kind of Michael Moore. Uh, mm. I'm going to expose all this and show how how funny it was. It was actually it was actually deadly serious, and it was really it was um, really difficult not to be um, not to be politically as well as emotionally moved by by what you wrote. So I really liked those things. Okay, so maybe a couple things that you know um, are not possible to do, but maybe you could respond to. <laughs> I mean, I think. Um, what Brenna said about disaster capitalism is something that, that struck me quite a lot. I was searching in, in the book, and maybe you didn't really want to define it too narrowly or, or too specifically because it would, you know, it would in a sense hamper the kinds of places you could go with your analysis. Sometimes I felt it was kind of a romanticized notion of capitalism that it was something that you know almost had an inertia of its own. It was kind of a thing. And other times it was very much uh, run and organized by uh, individuals in corporations, in government, um, uh, in small businesses, and so on. So I guess I I, I want I want more uh, more response on, on why you made those decisions to to um, to leave it so open. I said something about gender and race, and maybe the other thing I could say about that is that you know um, I guess drawing on the work of, of um, Judith Butler and thinking about you know which lives are grievable, which lives are disposable, which lives we mourn over, which lives matter. Um, maybe maybe I, I maybe I wanted more of that um, in your analysis and going back to the to the macro. Um, maybe maybe I'll just say two other things and then we can because that's a lot. You're gonna have a lot of work to do. <laughs> um, I'm just thinking about one practical. Uh, case study that may have been very difficult for you to include, and, and uh, but I really did think about the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, partly because there's been an expansion uh, in the DRC as a result of conflict, insecurity, and ongoing war and violence. Actually, uh, you have the aid industry well established there, and you also have this this absolutely exponential expansion of the NGO sector. Not motivated by, and not I guess not morally or ethically motivated by profit, but then you really have, you know, for example, in the DRC you have the establishment of you know so many NGOs that are apparently dealing with victims of sexual violence, 
so aid money is, is being funneled into a lot of these NGOs, but there's no accountability. So I think, I think you're right on, on that path. There's no, there's no sense of whether this is happening or how. And I think you, you know, you rightly say nothing has changed. I, I sort of like the idea of that as a kind of campaign model on like Obama's. <laughs> I like the idea nothing has changed um, as a kind of as a as a subtitle. Um, but I think it's 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 very powerfully conveyed. Maybe maybe the last point. And I can't believe I'm actually saying this, but. I wanted to know about the positive aspects of capitalism. <laughs> um, I just thought, it, you know, there was, there was almost like a kind of, um, I guess there was a sort of subtext in, in what you said earlier, too, that, you know, is there a desire for, in all of us, that maybe we're not doing capitalism as well as we could be, and that's the problem? <laughs> I hope not. Um, um, but it seemed like there was we wanted we want to have our cake and eat it too in 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 the conclusion of a bit in terms of we want to criticize disaster capitalism you know we want to criticize the neoliberal agenda but then you know there were lots of individuals that you spoke to who really wanted a better life and who have a very significant investment in ideas um, of capital accumulation and of neoliberalism and I guess I wanted to know you know what things can we can we live with. Um, so, I think I'll leave it. Well, <laughs> I want to first thank both of you for really interesting questions and thoughts about the book, and I'll try to, I don't think it's so much answering, just some thoughts and observations about it. The question of the, the gender issue is something that I thought about a lot in my book. When I say gender issue, what I mean is that the, I don't think it's a question of gender balance per se, but the people you choose to speak to, the people you choose to feature in the book, as a white western male, I go to a certain certain places, and I wanted to say, for example, in Afghanistan, as a western man, you can speak to Afghan women, but it's very difficult. You can speak to Afghan women in Kabul, but beyond that, it's very, very difficult. When I was doing research on the mining issue in an hour from Kabul, I would argue it's literally impossible for a man, like I visited a village and the women literally were hidden away and I couldn't even, like hidden away, you can't even meet them. Now, that's not an excuse as much as this is an explanation that it's, I mean, some of the more interesting reporting about a lot of places like, for example, Saudi Arabia is an acknowledgement that you really can't do it, you need to do it, a man and a woman needs to do it. In other words, if, a, if you want to get to a decent understanding of Saudi Arabia, a man won't get the full picture of a little woman because a woman probably can't speak to the men and vice versa. That's just the nature of how these societies are operating. And when I was in Saudi Arabia a number of years ago, I had that problem that, yes, I could speak to some Western-friendly women, for want of a better expression, but beyond that, it was impossible. You just cannot speak to women as a man, as a Western man. Uh, Western journalists, I should say. I, I suspect it could be a little bit different. Not that I sort of wear a sign saying I'm a journalist when you go somewhere, but you are a journalist, and not many journalists, for example, go to Saudi Arabia because um, they can't get in, especially if you're Jewish. So, and that's, that was interesting. But I, it is something I think about. I'm working on a film with them. I'm going to show hopefully at the end a clip of a, a documentary I'm working on with the American filmmaker called Disaster Capitalism. It's not really a film version of the book. It's inspired by the book, featuring um, Afghanistan, Haiti, and Papua New Guinea. And there's not, there is some overlap between the book, but essentially giving examples of um, 
three characters, one in each country, a woman in Haiti, uh, a woman in Papua New Guinea, and a man in Afghanistan, people, local people, who are trying to, I guess, challenge this idea that exploitation is the only outcome for their countries. Um, and it's something my film partner and I thought about as wasn't again a conscious decision to say let's have less men in the film but I was aware when we were shooting the film over the last um, four years or so that in the book that I was then writing that there were probably, probably there are more male voices than female voices. I guess that's just a long way of saying that I think about this issue more than I used to and I think as a journalist going into places there is really I think a, an understanding in some places at least, of why, how do I put this? In Afghanistan, for example, there was a real difficulty in getting access to speak to people who didn't often say what you think they wanted you to hear. That's men and women, it's not just women, that's just people in general. And that's a challenge, I think, as a journalist, and I'm guessing as an academic researcher as well, and when you go to places, you, in some ways, unless you spend incredible amounts of time with people, you don't really know if they're saying what you want to hear. And that's not in itself making bad people by any means. It simply means that it could be for security reasons or practical reasons, pragmatic reasons, whatever it may be. And I was aware of that, particularly when it came to women in Haiti, as an example, where we did spend, it's more in the film than the book, uh, with a number of uh, Haitian local NGOs that are working on women who are being sexually abused, which is off the charts there, not much research on it really, not much government support, not a lot of outside support. And it was difficult for, as you say, self-evident reasons for a white Western man to have a lot of conversation with someone who may have been sexually abused. I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's very hard. Um, hard for them, and they have to mainly have one speak to um, so, Yes, it's something that I'm becoming a lot more aware of in my work in general, which I guess implies in some ways that I was less aware of years ago, and I guess I was. Um, so, thank you for that. In terms of, there's definitely not an attempt to sugarcoat the so-called glory days of capitalism, or suggest if only it was like this. Far from it. I guess there was a choice I made, partly in conversation with Verso, my publisher, but mostly because of me, that I didn't really want to go into great depth in the book explaining, not saying explain what capitalism was, but explaining that, in other words, countering the argument of those who massively advocate for it that says it's pulled millions of people out of poverty, it's provided opportunities and jobs, they work, and yes, one can't say that people someplace haven't got jobs, yes they do. But structurally, to me, it was more important to sort of say that I do think there's a difference between capitalism and disaster capitalism. Academically, I don't know, but practically, the extreme nature of what is happening in a globalised environment, to me, is far more insidious than, say, having, you know, the local tuck shop at a school run by a private company. That is not the same for profit, that, is, that, that can have its own problems, I'm not saying that's a good thing either, but that's very different, obviously, to a war being outsourced. To me, they're not the same thing. You could say they're two sides of the same coin, maybe, but I don't see that. I think it's different. I think there is a tendency to um, 
not idealised, but there's a tendency, I think, to miss that point if one spends too much time in the West. And I think a lot of us who have the privileged opportunity to visit and spend time in places that are not like here, and it's not to idealise the UK or Australia or the US by any means, there is a real challenge when I, for example, in Afghanistan was meeting a lot of people who were affected by mine. When you start talking to them, and it was men, because I couldn't speak to women, speaking to them about did they support the mine? Would they want a job from the mine? Did they have any opportunities if there was not a mine? The simple answer was there were none. And this doesn't mean that let's idealise an awful polluting mine. Far from it. It simply says, unless there are opportunities which are developed, it is not surprising that many communities, locals and others, in virtually every country I've visited, from Haiti to Afghanistan, Papua New Guinea, will initially at least, at least initially, potentially welcome the idea of a mine, despite possibly knowing that it's going to be environmentally disastrous. So that doesn't mean that that's a good outcome. But I think there's also a sense I've found on the on this point. And I talk a lot about this with Afghan friends in Afghanistan, that is it the role of a foreign journalist, writer, academic, politician, to go into Afghanistan or somewhere else and say, you guys are doing it wrong. And what you should really be doing is, don't mind $4 trillion of resources, that's going to be bad for you. Not only providing any other opportunities to get jobs or, or, or money or security, but simply saying, don't exploit your resources. And that's by saying, well, I think Afghanistan definitely should not exploit their resources. But one can say that, but that's not even the conversation. That's the beginning of the conversation. People I meet, even people who are the activists in this industry in Afghanistan who are fundamentally against mining, because they knew it would be disastrous corruption environmental reasons, were saying, we're doing this because we know it's going to happen anyway. Well, that means that there's a, like a, a Faustian bargain. There's, well, there's really no choice. There are sense you're told, you either have a mining job or no job. Or you have, I mean, yeah, that's the option. And I think I was trying to explain, I guess others can judge if I have done it successfully, whether those kind of practical choices, and they are literally often as black and white as that, is what we in the West, who are often causing the problems in the first place, want to be providing and suggesting to people in Papua New Guinea or Afghanistan or Haiti. And I would say that that's a pretty awful choice. We're not really giving people much of a choice, but we're causing the problems up in the first place. That's an issue to me. Great. If we could open this up to the rest of our room. Um, so if you have any questions or comments, now's the time. We've also got Disaster Capitalism in the movie um, to, to screen a, a trailer of... Um, when... <laughs> Maybe the silent movie. Um, yeah, so but could we now? Could we, uh, yeah, perhaps identify yourself just so we can have a chat knowing each other. And the question is, look, just don't stay contact, highlight and restrain abuse. Then civil society marks. What we're seeing in the UK at the moment is a very difficult effort by the state to constrain the ability of civil society to hold the state and corporations to account. 
got fitness checkers where he's been that over the last few weeks. You've got charities who've been told they can't talk about politics. They can try and provide us, but they can't talk about our mishomelessness. Like, in terms of before the last election, an ardent neoliberal advocate and in trust with charities. We've got the trade union law, which not only responds to trade unions, but it's attempting to back up the Labour Party based on the main source of funding. We've got the short money, which is money that's sent, given to uh, opposition parties in Parliament, so they can produce abusing opposition. We've got prevent, and if I talk about prevent, I'm probably saying prevent isn't a bad idea, therefore we have to reform the idea of prevent as being a dangerous terrorist. But, but the way that has actually stopped me off schools, students, university students, teachers, university lecturers from addressing important issues. We've got TTIP building on what trade organisation attempts to say that any big corporations can do can't be challenged by states anyway except for the human rights. But even in the House of Lords in our urban say boo to the government because they're trying to pull a fast one. They try to take away those rules. We've got local authorities which are told they can't use ethical procurement or investment. We've got individual registration for election, which will not be mostly got the electoral role. We've got the BBC Charter Renewal and Privatisation of Channel 4, which is constraining two possible channels of comment. Locally, we've got the Research Excellence Framework and the Teaching Excellence Framework to constrain what our academics teach and research. We've got Hofstede to entertain the school and a reduced national curriculum. Curriculum. Okay, you get an idea. The problem is we've got lots of people talking about these things individually. But what we've not got is a coherent discourse which says democracy and dissent is under very substantial and significant attack in the UK. I could talk about similar things in Australia, in the United States, in the United States, in France. I think it's probably more advanced in this country, more coherent as And we can't see this attempt to demobilize civil society as a strategy to actually enable the unviable uses of the capitalist efforts of the year and the and I basically agree with all that. I think there are more of a comment than a question, yeah. but certainly I'll say one thing very briefly that. What, what makes all those situations, um, what makes it more revealing that despite all those situations, I should say, you do have the idea of the rise of someone like Jeremy Corbyn, because in Australia, where I come from, someone like him is not on the horizon. I mean, I guess Corbyn wasn't on the horizon when he became leader either, but in general, it's hard to see someone like him being a potential leader of a major party, and whether he, Corbyn has any success in the long run, I guess we'll wait and see. To me, I think looking to political parties, major political parties for these solutions, I think is a mistake. I mean, I said I like a lot of what Corbyn stands for. There are very, very few examples in the modern era of issues that you're talking about where either major sides of politics in the US, UK, Australia, or Canada have actually advanced an agenda which is more democratic. There's very, very few examples. And I think it goes to the heart of when I saw today, I think The Guardian and The Financial Times had a so-called exclusive with the great Tony Blair saying that he really couldn't understand the rise of Corbyn here and Sanders in the US. One, that was even a new story, I guess it's from beyond me, it's not actually news. But secondly, it was unclear to me 
Yes, but there is, there is, I think, a, a weird disconnect about the fact that those kind of voices, regardless of the history of someone like the Labour, are still able to get that much attraction. That to me says a lot more about the press than does about the political class. A lot more about the press. Um, I'll take that as a comment, but yes, I mean, I, I agree with you. And Australia is very similar. There's a great crackdown on, for example, doctors and other people working in detention centres for immigrants being allowed, being uh, maybe legal to comment on abuses that they might see facing jail time. No one has gone to jail yet for it, but I'm only waiting for a test case for the government to try. Um, considering the fact that there's been rapes, murders, and other outrages on outsourced, privatised detention camps run by Australia and the Pacific, that's pretty worrying. So they want tasers now. Here or there? But there. Yeah. Well, I was. I was Manus Island, yeah. I just want to ask a question now. Is, is that I think I guess um, I think a disagreement I have with um, with with, the, with some of the distinctions you're making because you know I want to bring up the issue of the history of police violence, legislated or not, not legislated, but rather the monopoly um, that the state has had when it comes to violence, particularly in relationship to racialized communities. And, you know, when we talk about legal accountability, there's never been any legal accountability for deaths in custody in this country, for instance. So the idea that somehow now there's a difference with the deaths in custody that happen under private corporations, to me, can only be sustained if you put aside that history and the, the continued reality of racist state violence. You know, and, and when you were talking before about the we and the West and the them, again, I have to ask, uh, who is the we that you're talking about? You know, indigenous communities in Canada or Australia have never been included in the we of the West. Um, you know, people of color in Canada or the US or Australia or the West have never been included in the we of these nation states, right? They're premised on the exclusion of those communities. So this, I, I really think that part of you know, the, the perspective of disaster capitalism is distinctly different from other forms of violent capitalist accumulation really depends on where one sits, one's position, one's own history, and, and, uh, and, and these very old debates that have been happening not just academically but very much in activist circles as well. So for for you know decades and decades. So I, I just wanted to raise that because it's yeah. still I mean so in the US for example a question which I feature in the book as well about the difference between for example private um, prisons and publicly run prisons or private detention centres for migrants versus public ones. There is strong evidence that suggests that both conditions in both of them are terrible. Mm -hmm. There's no question about that. However, and again, this is not just, and I'm not saying that you're suggesting this, but just to clarify, I'm not idealising a situation that all the prisons are run by the state, therefore no problem. Yes, there's obviously structural, institutional, racist issues, which is why America has 2.3 million people in prison tonight. Of course that's about racism. There's no doubt about that. And the book Vic talks about that, I think, quite extensively, as my other work does too. However, the fact that there are 
there has been massive growth in privatised prisons and detention centres and the effect that has even worse than public institutions, to me, is worth noting because the evidence is there. But it's not by any means to say, just to be clear, you're right, instead of saying that, which is mostly true, that the state has a monopoly on violence, yes, but I'd say that in the last 30 years that has changed. I think the balance has shifted, not entirely from the state, but I think it's become not as much just the monopoly by the state. And that, to me, is worrying, yeah. as it is by the state. <laughs> I just follow up on that. I guess the, the, for me, the link between that is about when we focus on disaster capitalism, and I think, you, I think you've made a pretty compelling case for the uniqueness of that, however, <laughs> however broadly defined. Do we then potentially become myopic, and, or do we absolve the state from its responsibilities and its historical monopoly on those forms of violence, and, and I guess that, that to me it's sort of you know, or do we do we artificially separate those processes of accumul- of capitalist accumulation by suggesting that they're they're parallel or separate structures when when really they they've always been they've always been joined together. And again, I don't think you you, you make that point. You're not you're not um, yeah. arguing against that, but I think that. Yeah. The, the absolution of the state that, that could take place. Mm. If your book was read incorrectly, <laughs> I mean, everyone's going to read your, read your book against the brain and read it in however, however um, many ways, but I do, I do think that there's, there's a, you know, by focusing on those private corporations, there is this, um, I'm sure a lot of, a lot of states would be, would be very, um, very supportive of your analysis, but someone else is also Coming on that point. I just want to question. My question goes to the direction of like a change in capitalism or good capitalism. So, what is your opinion um, on the cooperate or like the collaboration between big multinational companies and NGOs? So, for example, take the Nestle case. In 2010, you started working together with the Danish Institute for Human Rights and they produced like the Human Rights Impact of Nestle. And for example, at the moment, the, the head of public affairs and social standards of Nestle worked like many years for the International Red Cross. So, disputes between um, big NGOs as well as like, state paid NGOs and the corporation, do you think there's like a chance of change or is it just to make a picture nice and for the multinational? I think it's that, I and mean, I talk about that to some extent in the book, um, in a variety of cases, especially in relation to Haiti and Afghanistan. I can speak less about the examples you just gave me, but there has definitely been a shift in the last 20 years to a far greater and seamless coordination, conversation, collaboration between not all NGOs, of course, but a number of NGOs and multinationals. I and mean, in some ways, I could see why benefits are multinational greatly. I mean, the whole concept, for example, of corporate social responsibility that many corporates talk about, saying when we do one, we might do bad things here, but then we also hug babies in somewhere. That makes us nuts. Or, I mean, that to me is concerning. I think the problem also is, this is a key theme of the book and the film, is do many of us, when we give aid after a disaster, say, no, where it's going? Now, there's no way to find out exactly where you're 50 pounds might go in Haiti. I'm not saying that. But I think there is such a profound lack of a, accountability of NGOs themselves, not all of course, but many, in terms of where their money is going and who is helping or not. 
And secondly, I think there is a problem when there is a, and this happened in Afghanistan a great deal, a massive coordination and pressure by the US government, for example, to work with NGOs to deliver aid. In other words, aid is delivered to the barrel of a gun. So a villager in some remote place receives some food by a soldier as opposed to an NGO. Now, that, both those can, can be problematic. I'm not saying that because a soldier arrives with a gun, therefore he or she is a bad person. I'm saying that structurally, if you deliver aid by the military, that is different to an aid worker coming from an organisation that is not coming with a gun. I mean, that, like, optics matter. And also what your aim matters. And also the US government's aim is rather different if you go to an NGO. Well, not always. So no, I think that collaboration is a problem and I think it's getting worse and I wish that there was more reporting done about that and I think there is a likelihood it's going to increase because it's seen to get both sides, both NGOs who would like to receive decent, consistent funding, which often they don't have, and secondly, from multinationals' perspective because it helps to burnish their image. But I think it's a problem. I mean, on that, I mean, I wonder in the peacekeeping context whether there's any... Um, I, I mean, I could. No, I, I'm away. Mm, so yeah. great. Give people an opportunity. I can see we've got a, a second question, but just to give others an opportunity, if anyone else is that a, no. no, it's like an option. Yeah. Just yeah, don't scratch your nose. I'll call in. Did you want to ask? It's just a question and answer. Why do you think of a new guy who thinks of some business human rights? I mean, so like, so it's very much as well based on mediation mechanisms, for example, between NGOs affected communities and corporations. I haven't, I, mean, I, no, I read about them, I can't, I'm not going to say I'm an expert about all of them, so I'd probably rather not comment. I sense you could say more about them than I can, but I mean, I. It doesn't, hasn't really featured much of my research about those issues, so I guess I'd rather not say that much about that. I mean, the UN has um, long employed um, advisors yeah. who um, directly, uh, you know, um, speak to, for example, in, in Liberia, uh, UN civilian staff have been advising metal steel um, um, how, to, how to pay for school fees of local workers um, children and so on. They've been they're they're very much part of the yeah. um, which is probably what you can say partly on Friday, which is that the UN is very much invested in the neoliberal agenda, um, mm-hmm. the neoliberal um, um, development agenda. So I think that I think they're it, it's really about honing it. It's often unknown that they are um, providing business rights advice. Actually, Mittal probably is getting a bargain having the UN advise them because they could really afford much more expensive um, ethics and business uh, advisors. And the UN are really being actually almost exploited in terms of their salaries and, and expertise almost. Um, yeah. Can I just ask a question? Uh, yes. I wanted to ask a question about the whole issue of accountability and responsibility because I think that's a really, really important thing that comes up again and is one of the more depressing aspects of the research they've uncovered that these corporations can uh, engage in all kinds of violations, overcharging for their services, etc., and they're handed more contracts. Um, now, you know, as a legal academic, I'm quite familiar with the usefulness and utility of using the law strategically and pragmatically for good ends. So I don't uh, not believe in doing that. 
But I wanted to ask you um, about what other, and this is, I guess goes to the question about our political imaginaries and how, you know, are they now, if we follow Wendy Brown's arguments, also being completely constrained by neoliberal reasons. So what other forms besides legal accountability can we think about, even if it's really blue sky thinking and, and utopian thinking? What I'm going to suggest is far from a solution, but there has been a number of examples where naming and shaming through the press has worked. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm suggesting, for example, the case that's coming to my mind is the company Blackwater, many people know, it's an American private security company which now has a different name. There has been, after years and years, a degree of accountability, everything from the shooting in Iraq of a number of Iraqi civilians, the Blackwater security guys who did it were not going to be charged and they were charged, that was also through the court. So in the end, there was some sort of kind of, well, there was accountability. The leadership of Blackwater is still running the company when they left it doing something else. I think naming and shaming is one effective way. I think um, divestment and boycotts is another way. I think shareholder activism is important as much as I, I think that there are some issues with that as well. I think I see... Obviously, the climate change issue, I think, has become quite effective, especially in the US. Um, I think it's going to grow as governments, for a variety of self-interested reasons, that have a great interest in actually um, putting deep, necessary regulation on companies that are polluting the air. So I think that is another way. And I, I don't know, I guess I think that... Yeah, I mean, I think the idea often of having individual personal stories has such a major effect on how people view the situation. It's such an obvious thing in a way, but one of the key things in the immigration issue, for example, which is irrelevant for the US, UK and Australia, in the book I'm talking about it's, it's relevant more widely, is that the key aim of the policy on immigration is to not put a face to the policy that corporations and governments know. And if you humanise a person who has come from Afghanistan or Syria or somewhere else, there's a chance not guarantee, as we've seen in parts of Europe, that there will be sympathy towards people who are coming from Syria, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. Um, I think that's one way. Look, ultimately, I think it depends what day you're asking me. I think there are certain um, days where I think it's not a question I have no hope for anything. I don't think the book is that pessimistic. That might sound weird based on what we talked about tonight, but I think there are a great deal of elements that, not just in the book, but in general, of avenues that can be pursued, and I'm talking mostly about I guess, the media here, and there are avenues where I think a lot of journalists, if they choose to be a lot more curious, could be far more useful on this issue, on these issues. Um, and mostly I have a great deal of faith in my profession, and that's unfortunate, but I have faith in a number of people who are doing important work that often doesn't get the kind of coverage that it should, and therefore I think engaging and connecting with groups that are both local media, as I did with the previous book, and also I think whistleblowing is also an important part. So sites like WikiLeaks that I've supported since its inception in 2006 is utterly putting aside the personal politics of what's happening there at the moment. The embassy down the road, I'm talking about as an organisation, I think is utterly essential. I think it's done unbelievably important work and continues doing important work with released my documents this week. Um, I think sites like that and Organisations like that are utterly invaluable. They do change people's opinions about how they see states and corporations. They really do. We're almost out of time, but we do have one more. <coughs> sure. 
Yeah, um, I just wanted to, I guess, touch upon what we were talking about. It seems almost a very kind of bounding kind of um, act, like, there's very kind of disaster capitalism that is restricted uh, our ability to kind of act in the political realm almost. Um, so the, the way I understand kind of what's been happening in the past kind of 40, 50 years is that with this kind of ideological terms of what's neoliberalism, it's been kind of the state has been acting to open up markets as a result of kind of the decline of profitability within capitalism. Um, and that has relied on breaking down, I guess, the working class um, um, collective action, if you like, kind of all, the organisation of the working class has been broken down. We see it with kind of the trade union stuff. So, and, and that happens kind of throughout the West. And so the, the only kind of so the only kind of things that can happen when kind of working classes broken down is when you have kind of fascistic elements who come up and see how kind of almost um, in broken states like Syria you have kind of this kind of mad max element kind of like ISIS kind of come about. Um, and then whenever, for example, you do have kind of what I see as kind of positive political solutions in Syriza, they're, they're completely crushed and kind of capitulation just results in the rise of, or kind of potentially could rise in, um, result in the rise of part of my goal. And so you seem to be saying kind of the only solution is kind of individual action through kind of, or not, not necessarily individual action, but not political action. It seems to be kind of sad, um, Divestment, kind of WikiLeaks, and I was just wondering. Divestment is collected. Yeah. For, for effectiveness, divestment is collected. I mean, it's gone. Yeah, no, I, I was just wondering in, in, in that case, kind of throughout kind of your, your research, whether. Uh, and I guess kind of that touches upon kind of political imaginary as well, whether you, you kind of encountered any kind of new ways of kind of organization kind of beyond kind of what was traditionally kind of. Organising kind of trade unions, you kind of build up um, a mass political party. Is there, like, what is the alternative, like, political alternatives, like, to, to kind of counterplay? Well, I give quite a few examples in the book. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Greece and Syriza. I think if I do an update of the book, which might happen this year, when the paperback comes out, um, I am probably, not probably, am. Overly optimistic about Syriza. I mean, I've written about this since the great capitulation in the last year, really. I think it's been an unmitigated disaster that's happened there. Um, and my, as it turned out, false optimism about Syriza as an example of a party that essentially was a fringe party in the Greek political system that rose from relatively fringe position to government within a quite short amount of time. I think shows a momentum somewhat can actually be achieved by, um, as it turned out, governing party in Greece. And secondly, I think it says a lot, which is more a question, I guess, you guys are going to face in June, and whether the European Union is something you want to be a part of. Now, the reason why those who are opposing it here, mostly on the right, and not the reasons I would say one should question whether you should be a part of the EU, I think Greece and the refugee crisis on its own would have to make any sensible, rational human being question whether the European Union in any kind of rational form is something you want to be a part of. Because I mean, therefore, one should leave, and that's the decision for you guys to make here. But there are, I think, a lot of examples. I think the best one is the classic um, collective action. You can become a shareholder in Company X and stand up with an AGM and complain. But divestment, but the effective divestment I'm talking about is say climate change, has been mass movements. 
350.org is a good example. They've done amazing work in the US and also this is like huge numbers of people, not just protesting in old traditional ways, but also convincing massive hedge funds to invest from. I mean, that to me is, is an action. It's not stopping climate change tomorrow, but it's having a political and. Yes. Well, in that particular case, 350's main aim, obviously, is to fully renewable future, and they talk about that in great detail. So, yes, I'd say that it's not just these guys are all crap, there's nothing over here. I think it very much is about saying that there is a way to transition to clean energy, not tomorrow, but relatively quickly, and divest from companies that are not going to be part of that future. That, to me, is probably the last 10 years one of the more effective methods. And I'd also say, just to finish on this point, that I think the growing movement, despite the attempt in the UK to crush it, of divestments and sanctions against Israel, is only going to grow as well. And that is a movement that is come out of relatively, well, emerged in 2005, um, from Palestinian civil society groups have amazing successes and failures as well, to be sure. But it's growing exponentially, which is why you see profound fear in the halls of power here and in many other countries around the world. Well, thank you. I don't think we are. Okay. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you should, you should read the book before you see the film. It's like Lord of the Rings. It's only a trailer. I might be But while this technological magic um, work is going on, we have pages of Hackney here with copies of the book. Visceral, intensely personal, not funny. Um, and certainly Noam Chomsky and, and um, Naomi Klein on the back of the book, my goodness, the very dream of having such words written about a book um, by such figures. It, it, it really is, and let alone from us who've all read it um, and, and been stunned, as we've said, by um, its overwhelming breath. Um, what, what, are we, what are we flogging it for tonight, Pages of Hackney? Uh, 16.99. 16.99. Um, I should say the, the sound's not working, so that's unfortunate. But you can the film is disastercapitalismfilm.com. It's a film in progress. There's a trailer. Um, it's 90% shot. We hope to finish it this year. Where we, my film partner and I, are doing everything at the moment. We're trying to raise more money. It is coming, and it's as I said, related to the issues in the book. So I just to check it out. You can follow us on social media and keep in touch. Thank you. And on that note, thank you, Anthony.